this time we have the joy and the privilege of turning together to the Word of God. I invite you to follow along in your bulletin, of course in a Bible if you have one, or on the screen. We have two passages this morning. The first from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 16, and the second from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. Hear now God's Word, beginning in Matthew 1, 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And Luke 2, 39 to 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but began to search, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. want to just remind you that this Saturday, one of the most important services of the year for us, the reason why it's so important is because we have so many people who normally do not come to church who are interested in coming to church. And so 5 o'clock uh, Christmas Eve, we will be across the parking lot at the McCoy Center and really want to encourage you to grab a couple of those little square cards on both of those tables. They're Christmas Eve invitations uh, I heard from one of our people just this week on Tuesday or Wednesday, he went out to the bus stop with his kids and just passed out invitations to everybody at his bus stop. Re love that, love that. And if you have family, friends, neighbors that you want to invite, uh, that you feel the Lord is putting on your heart, please invite them and we will share the gospel clearly and joyfully and we'll see what God does on that day. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Um, please be praying for that service as well. This morning, we are finishing a series that we have been in for the season of Advent called The Misfit Mothers of Jesus. And these are the women in Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. There are five women. We only had four weeks, so we covered four of them. But all five 
are misfits in their own way. They've had uh, terrible experiences where they have been oppressed or they have had to go through um, tremendous difficulties and the loss of people that they've loved. And, and uh, almost all of them have been outsiders in the sense that they were not part of the Israelites, the people of God. And yet God grafts them in and they become mothers of Jesus. That is amazing. And that points to the universal nature of the gospel. It is not just for one ethnicity. It is not just for one people group. It is for all tongues, tribes, and nations. Amen? And so this morning, we're going to look at Mary. She is no exception in being a misfit in the sense that she's, she's an unwed teenage mom. And you cannot imagine how difficult that would be in that era. It's difficult in any era. But in that era, in the first century, it would have been tremendously difficult. And, and there, there are passages, and, and just to set this up, we're in Luke chapter 2. Mary has, has said to God when the angel Gabriel comes and says, I have a plan, you're going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She says, how, how will this be? I'm a virgin. The, the power of the Almighty will overshadow you. You'll give birth and he's going to be a king. And what does Mary say? Let it be to me according to your word. What a bold, courageous answer to God. And this morning, I, I want to look at the one passage where we get a glimpse into Jesus' adolescence, okay? Wouldn't you like to know all about the teenage Jesus? Like, that'd be pretty cool, but we don't have that. We have one passage right here. He's 12 years old, actually. He's an adolescent. And we get a glimpse into Mary as a mom and Joseph as a dad and what they do as parents. And um, that relates to all of us. If you, if you are a parent, it certainly relates to you. But if it doesn't, if you are not a parent, or if your parents are out of the home, we have a family right here, amen? We're the family of God. And we owe it to one another to help one another to be more faithful to Jesus, particularly with our, our children as they, as they grow up, the children in this church. So you don't have to be a mom or a dad to have children around you who you are actually responsible for. In fact, when Cora was baptized, you answered a question that you would pray for her, you would help raise her in the faith, right? And I, think, I didn't hear anybody that said, I don't. So we all, we're responsible for each other in the family of God. So we're going to look at this family and what they do and what happens and, and then apply that to our lives, Lord willing. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us and, and for your word. And we pray that as we look at these, uh, these parents, Mary and, and Joseph, and their raising of of the eternal Son of God who enters into human history in the flesh. We pray, God, that you would give us wisdom. Uh, I, I pray for those who are not yet parents, but will be one day, for our, our middle school and high schoolers and college students, and I pray that you would give them a vision for their future. I pray for those who are parents right now who are in the fight. I pray that you would bless them and give them energy and, and wisdom. I pray for those who are perhaps grandparents, those who don't have, have children. I pray that you would give them a vision as well for how they can continue to serve uh, the children who are growing up in this church. 
pray for all of us that we would submit to your word and pray that you would guide, may, may my words be your words. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to look first at um, Mary and Joseph. They are faithful parents, and you can see that in what they do immediately after they um, have Jesus. So Luke chap- chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 is the text that we will look at on Saturday night. It's the, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Well, immediately after that, they, uh, eight days after Jesus is born, they do what um, faithful uh, God-fearing Jews do, and they have Jesus circumcised. That act is very similar to what we do in baptizing children. It's a sign of the covenant promise that God gives to his people, that it comes not just through, not just for Abraham as an individual, Abraham and his children in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Peter says in the very first Christian sermon, this promise of deliverance in Jesus' name and salvation is for you and your children. And so they're, they're being faithful parents by presenting him for circumcision. Then 40 days later, they go back to the temple. And at the temple, they offer sacrifices for Jesus because he's the firstborn son. And that's what they're supposed to do according to the law. And then it says in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. If you, if you look at the composite picture, what do you find? You find parents who are very, very serious about raising their children to know who God is. This Jesus kid, as he's growing up, has a whole lot of God's law in his life. It's because of his parents. And that is a command in the Old Testament. Right after the most important command that's given, the, the Shema is what it's called, and the, it's a Hebrew word for listen up or hear. And then it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And right after that passage, it says this, these words shall be on your heart. Teach them to your children. Shall, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is not just, you know, a a once a week effort. The command to raise children knowing and understanding who God is, is all encompassing. And so Jesus, as he's growing up, the rhythms of family life revolved around God and his law. They worshiped, they sacrificed, they traveled to make all of this happen. And so I want to make, the, make it clear that Jesus' home was one of piety and observance and obedience to God. And I want you to reflect on your own home. If you have children, is your home reflective of the same thing? Because without a doubt, uh, sociologically, the number one influence on children is who? It's their parents. And you have this amazing opportunity with your children living in the home. I, I, I want to make clear that this, this little thing that we could easily skip over. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Do you, do you know where Jesus grew up? He grew up in Nazareth. Do you know where Nazareth is? It's in the north. It's, it's a ways away from Jerusalem where the Passover is celebrated. I just mapped it the other day and then I screenshotted it. If you lived in Nazareth today and you walked, it would take one day and seven hours to walk. They surely walked. 
It's also 11,500 feet of climb. It's quite a workout. And I think about how often you and I decide not to do things because it's just too much of a pain. I mean, the kids got sports all Sunday. We just, we're going to sit this one out. Or, or whatever it might be, they were very serious about raising Jesus in the fear of the Lord. Now, I, I would say that, um, and I would imagine that they found a fairly receptive soul in Jesus to the law of the Lord, him being the eternal son of God. But the point is that they did their part. Now, in the New Testament, the word for this is paideia. That's the Greek word on the left, and that's transliterated. And it comes from this verse, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the paideia, the instruction of the Lord. That is a very important New Testament word. And it is the transfer of a way of viewing the world from parents to children. It is what shapes and forms the child in terms of his or her vision for their own life, their vision for the good life. It's essential as part of the upbringing that forms the soul of the child. That's what paideia is. Let's say that word together. One, two, three. Paideia. What you are doing when you have children in the home is the calling from God, the command of the Lord, is that we give them a full Christian way of understanding the world. It is a description, paideia is, of the values that we actually love, the truth that we actually believe, and what we assume about the nature of our world. It is an entire way of life. And so I want to ask you this question, you parents with children in your home. What is the most important thing you want to give your children when they leave home? There are a lot of really important things, and certainly we, we want to impart to them our unconditional love. We want to give them all kinds of opportunities to succeed or fail and learn from those things. We want to give them a diversity of experiences. We want to show them the wider world, that the whole world is not like this particular community. There are lots of things that we want to do, but I want to be clear, if you are a Christian mom, a Christian dad, the most important, the greatest gift that you can give to your children is a Christian foundation and structure to their lives. That doesn't mean you can make them believe the gospel. You can't. But you can do everything within your power to raise them in the Christian faith. That is the calling and the command for Christian parents, to give them a paideia. I want to just give you a couple quick examples of young kids that are learning this paideia. Okay, this, this um, child, you, you saw him up here with his family uh, reading for the Advent candle. He was actually trying to steal the microphone from Tanner, if you looked closely enough. And he's going to answer a question. It's a catechism question, so have a listen. Cameron, who made you? God. That's the first question in this catechism that they're teaching their kids. And he's pretty young. But he's, he knows something very important, doesn't he? Who made him? God made him. That's a very important truth, and they're teaching it. We can also teach our kids, like, they are smarter than they look. They can memorize scripture. I was just kidding to you kids. Um, but, but they can. This is, this is uh, James McCleary holding his younger brother 
and reciting scripture. So check this out. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, come to his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, is he who made us. And we are his his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 100. Isn't that amazing? Now, I really like that because they were like giving him a, a weightlifting workout at the same time that he was memorizing scripture. Like, did you see how out of breath he was? It was quite impressive. And I, I share those not to put anyone under the pile, to make, to, to make anyone feel guilt. It is not about what we've done in the past. It's what we do now and going forward. And I, I want you to know, those of you with young kids, there are, there are steps you can take to raise your children to know and love Jesus. And by the way, it is a joy to have little kids here in worship, in the worship space. And if, they're, if your kids are here one day and they're completely, like, just, they didn't sleep well and they're just, they're, they're going crazy, we do not mind. We love having kids here because having kids here makes it, doesn't it make it a, like a joyful, chaotic, but, but amazing environment? Like, we want kids in the worship space. And if you have young kids, please bring them to church. This is where they belong. Amen? So Mary and Joseph, they were faithful parents and they raised Jesus, and I want you to see this in the text, that Jesus is growing, and the child grew, verse 40, and became strong, filled with wisdom. And then in 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Do you realize that the, son, the eternal Son of God, who created through whom, through whom and by whom all things were made, also grew and learned? That's amazing. How is that possible? Because Jesus is fully God and fully human, both natures together at the same time. He's fully God and fully human. And, and the, the reason that God, the Son, can enter into human history and that he doesn't immediately know everything and is able to, at the age of one, you know, crawl over to the Pharisees and say, woe to you Pharisees, is because he is fully human. And he's, Philippians 2 says he laid down aspects of his divine attributes. Like, he, you know, God is omnipresent. But obviously when Jesus enters into, takes on human flesh, he's very particular. And he isn't everywhere. So he's still fully God, fully human. And we need a savior who is fully God and fully human. Because it takes a human being to lay down his life for sins and only one who is fully divine can conquer death, sin, and the grave and rise from the dead. Amen? Amen? And that's Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're just not sure what you believe, I want to make sure you understand fully what the gospel is. It's very simple. God created us to know him and to obey him. You and I have gone the other way. We have all, every one of us, rebelled against him. And we can't make it right on our own. And in that position of hurtling, heading towards eternal separation from God, God sent his son Jesus 
and he lived a perfect life and he died a terrible death and he rose from the grave and he holds out his hands and he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and I will give you rest, I will give you salvation. And all you need to do to receive this amazing eternal gift is to say you are sorry for your sins and put your faith in Christ and you become a new person. That's what this fully divine, fully human savior has done for us and it is great news, amen? That's the gospel. So we see Jesus being raised in a home. Joseph and Mary are faithful parents. They are also very fearful parents when this all goes down. So it's another, we can assume, it's another great Passover. They celebrate together. They're heading back. They're with their extended family. They're with their their neighbors. And Joseph just assumed that Mary had double-checked. And Mary, thinking Joseph is the leader, knew that he was along with them. And a full day of traveling later, they come to find out that Jesus is not with them. Can you imagine what Mary felt in this moment? I would think it would be something like that, you know? Like, Kevin! Jesus! And who knows? Maybe Jesus felt like this when he figured out that he was there by himself in Jerusalem. We don't know. But certainly they were terrified. So it's a day close to Nazareth, then a day to get back. And then it says they searched for three more days. Can you imagine what they... Raise your hand if you've lost your child at one point. A lot of you. I was, um, about 10, 12 years ago, we were at Universal Studios in Orlando. They're young kids. Thousands of people there. And all of a sudden, one of them's gone. And it, it was one of, I mean, I still viscerally remember that moment. I was, I kind of, pan- I started sprinting up and down, screaming my child's name. And, and somehow, by the grace of God, and you know how, like, the worst case scenario goes through your head when something like that happens. And, Found her and she was just fine. She was just walking along. She wanted to go where she wanted to go. And incidentally, um, just a couple years ago, we had this amazing opportunity to go to Europe for the sabbatical that, that I took, and we lost the same child. Not once, but twice. In, you know, this small town, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Rome. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. We, um, we had a couple nicknames for our trip, and one of them was hashtag where's KK. <laughs> so it's terrifying to lose your kids, to not know where they are. They don't know where Jesus is for five days. What were they talking about? You know, like we had one job, Savior of the world. We lose him. Like, it'd be so, it'd be awful. I, I think this is a, a good point to, to remember that sometimes it is um, a better barometer of our parenting how we respond in our failures than in our successes, and we all fail as parents. All of us feel terrible about the things we do wrong. I would say that one of the best things we can do as Christian moms and dads when we fail is to go to our children and be humble and say, I'm sorry. Because what does that model? It models that we are sinners just like them. And um, they lost Jesus for five days and just unimaginable angst. And so I don't blame Mary for what she says in verse 48. 
Son, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That is an understatement. I bet five days of not sleeping, adrenaline pumping, thinking the worst case scenario. Finally find him, and it's pretty amazing what Jesus says in response as a faithful and submissive son. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house in verse 49? And I think that there's a couple important things to note here. First, Jesus is at the place where they have discipled him to be. Why is he at the temple? He's at the temple because Joseph and Mary have taught him to go to the temple to worship. So he's there. Why else is he there? At age 12, Jesus is, um, is showing us that he has a remarkable sense of his mission. He knows who his father is, and he knows these things that 12-year-olds do not know. It's incredible. And I, I want to point out, for those of you who are in middle school or high school, worship is for 12-year-olds. Okay? You, you might be here because your parents made you come, and you didn't want to come. You don't have to raise your hand if that's you, but it may be you. You need to know that you, at some point, are going to need to take ownership of your faith. It's not your parents' faith that saves you. It's your faith, and you might as well start now. You might as well start following Jesus now. You might as well start reading your Bible now. You might as well start getting Christian friends around you to help you walk with Jesus now. Jesus is 12 he is worshiping God. Worship is for 12-year-olds. And uh, I also want to point out, this is amazing. Jesus, in, in verse, they don't understand what he's talking about at this point. Now, we can also say that, uh, have you ever had a misunderstanding with your um, adolescent child? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves or our kids where, there, where there's a misunderstanding. It happens. Um, happens all the time. But notice what Jesus does. This is pretty incredible. It says in verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He submitted to their parental authority and he's the eternal son of God. So I want to speak with you teenagers for just a moment, okay? Um, if you're a teenager and think you know everything, point one, you're not the first one who thought they knew everything. And point two, you don't know everything. But every teenager kind of goes through that. I, I, I would say that I was perfectly submissive to my own parents when I was growing up. The only problem with that is that my parents are here in the room and they would stand and condemn me as a liar. So we all, we all go through uh, times where we struggle with our parents, but I, I just want to point out again that Jesus, the eternal son, was willing to submit to his parents. And your parents, uh, by and large, if they are in the room, they want your best. They want you to know God and to follow him. And now, given the choice between following God and following your parents, you have to follow God. He, he is your ultimate authority. But God is teaching you to obey him by giving you parents for you to obey them. Because if you can obey sinful people like your parents, then surely you can obey God. Okay, It, it does say in Ephesians 6.1, 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then it goes on to say that if you do this, you will be blessed by God in your obedience to them. And again, uh, they aren't perfect, but it is good to obey your parents and submit to them unless they are leading you away from obedience to God. And uh, if the Lord tells you, uh, Mom, Dad, I know you want me to study for that final, but God told me that I should play Fortnite instead. I'm pretty sure you got it wrong. So, so just this would be a good thing for you to talk about with your parents because it, it's, a, it's a critical aspect of how we relate to one another as parents and children. And um, I want to close with this last point, a vision for our future. And what, what I want to say is that um, Mary and Joseph, they raised Jesus to, to know God. They were faithful parents. That doesn't mean they were perfect. They left him for five days on accident. And, and um, you and I are not perfect, but we are called and commanded to create this paideia, this Christian culture in our families. But it extends beyond just the immediate family. It goes to extended families. It goes to the church family. And so I want to speak to those three different categories of people. Those who do not have children or whose children are out of the home those who are raising children, and those who are children, who are middle school, high school, college age, maybe right out of school. First, to those who don't have children or who don't have children in the home. If you are a, someone who, who, just, who does not have children, you have children here in this church, and you are called to be engaged in the lives of, of, of kids. And, and maybe the Lord leads you to a family that you are particularly close to. Don't hesitate to bless their kids by speaking into their lives, by getting to know them, by maybe going to, to coffee with them and talking to them about their faith. It's very important. And as a church, I see that happening, and I praise God for that. And, I, and may that continue. Okay, For those of us with children in the home, again, these, these, uh, this, this message is not intended to make anyone feel guilty about the past. It is only to cause us to consider what we do in the present and in the future. If you have children in your home, do something to raise them in the faith. Do something additional. It might be to memorize a Bible verse. It might be to start the catechism. It might be to, to have a time after church where you go and talk about the message. It might be to commit to being here. It might any number of things that you could do. But make no mistake, you and I will be held accountable for the Christian paideia that we created in our families. And, and that goes for, I would say the same for grandparents. You have such an opportunity to minister to your grandchildren. So that's those who uh, either don't have children or don't have children in the home. Those who are parents. Lastly, I want to speak to those who one day, perhaps, will be parents yourself. You're in middle school, you're in high school, you're in college. You might think that it is way too early to ever be thinking about anything like this. Believe me, the day is coming. It's coming. And I want to challenge you to have a different vision than the vision of the culture around us. And I would say, by and large, you could see this in, in, in the plummeting rates of people getting married and people having children. The rates are dropping off a cliff. 
And I think a big part of that is the vision for the future is just I want to be I want to be able to do what I want, go and travel where I want, have as as much money as I can spend, and I want to be free because if I'm tied down, then that will limit my freedom and my fun. I want to challenge you, even, I don't care if you're in seventh grade, to think about this vision for your life that includes responsibility and building a family early. It, it, most, most of the conventional wisdom is wait till you're 30 to even begin thinking about that. The reality is many people wait too long and it's too late. And again, I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm only speaking to those who have these decisions in front of them. Now, if you are not called to be married, praise God. There are many people in the Bible who are single and they honor and glorify God through it. And two of them in particular, Jesus and Paul. Pretty important guys in the Bible. But if you want to be married, then start thinking about it now. And if you are, you know, if you are in your early 20s and you're dating somebody who, you know, young women, you're dating a a man who loves Jesus and loves you, those are good criteria. Young man, you're dating a woman who loves Jesus and loves you. Those are good criteria. You don't need to have every duck in a row to begin to build a life together. In fact, it often works quite well when you figure it out together. But but make no mistake about it. The Bible is, in, in no uncertain terms, describes marriage and family as an incredible gift. And Mary and Joseph, they, they are a wonderful example of this. And did you know that they actually had more children? They had a lot more children. Uh, Matthew 13, or 15, sorry, 13, 55, and 56. Uh, every, Jesus goes back to his hometown, and, and they, they don't really want to listen to him because he was a kid that grew up there. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this his mother not called Mary? Are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, are not his sisters with us? At the very least, Jesus had six siblings. And I don't know what all his sisters mean, but it means at least two. So Mary and Joseph have this, this family, this big family. And they, they raise them to know God, you and I. And, and listen, uh, the Lord knows what your future holds. Maybe you'll be single and serve Jesus faithfully. Maybe you'll get married and serve Jesus faithfully. My only point is that marriage and and children are a wonderful, wonderful good according to the word of God. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They are a tremendous gift. And Mary and Joseph, they took the responsibility that they were given And they raise their children to know the living God. What an awesome responsibility fulfilled for for all of us. Consider what it is that God is calling you to do and fulfill that obligation, that responsibility. It will be for your joy as you seek to glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy. We thank you that you give us 
the gift of a church family. And no matter where, there, there, are, um, there are people here who are young. There are people who are single. There are people who are married with or without children, grandparents, all different walks of life, Lord. I pray that no one in this room would feel in any way condemned because in Christ we have been forgiven. And I also pray that we would hear and view what Mary and Joseph did in raising their children and that we would apply to our lives and our families the raising of children to know and love you. And I pray for those who are grandparents, for those who do not have children, those who are single. I thank you so much for all the ways that men and women are influencing younger people in our church. May that continue, Lord. May we truly be a church family where we have relationships that transcend our own families, where we truly are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we ask that we would do whatever you call us to. Give us a vision for our lives that is in line with your word. And now we pray according to how Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.